All right, this morning we begin a new series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, really looking forward to this, been looking forward to it for a while. Hebrews is a wonderful book, and I think we're going to profit greatly from it and hopefully enjoy going through this book uh, together. <clears throat> I did want to mention um, the little handout that's in your bulletin. It's kind of a half-page summary of the book of Hebrews. Um, take it or leave it. This is Martin's summary. <laughs> um, as, I'll, as I'll mention later, Hebrews is a book that's notoriously difficult to outline. Um, but as I read through it and tried to grasp the flow of thought, this is how it presents itself to me. It's not an outline. It's kind of a narrative. Um, but hopefully it will be uh, uh, useful to you. Keep it in your Bible if, if that's helpful. Um, but I will be kind of following this flow of thought as we move through the book. It's there for you to have. Um, I'll post it also on the webpage, uh, so it's accessible there as well. All right, we come to the book of Hebrews. We're just going to look at the first one and a half verses this morning, but use those as kind of a springboard to introduce the letter. So let me read those for us, just Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1, and the first part of verse 2. This is the word of the Lord that is before us this morning. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word. May it bear fruit here in our lives as we come before it this morning. Let me pray for us as we come before the word. Well, God, our Father, we ask that you would bless this time as we come before your word. We do ask that you would speak to us, Lord. That you would reveal yourself to us, your word to us, your will for us in this word this morning. We ask also that you would fulfill the promise that you have made about your word. <clears throat> that when it goes out, it does not return to you void, but instead is successful in the things for which you send it. May that be true here this morning. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in abundance upon us, so that our eyes might be opened, our ears opened, to see and hear what you have for us this morning from your word. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches. Father in heaven, we ask all of this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Matthew 17 is, is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. Um, it has kind of a covenant structure to it, I think. But it opens with this wonderful story. Jesus takes aside his disciples, is the inner circle of his disciples, Peter and James and John. And it says that they go up on a high mountain. And up on that high mountain, Jesus is transfigured, changed in appearance. His face shines like the sun, and his clothes are as white as light. And there with Jesus are Moses and Elijah talking with him. The disciples respond to that, Peter in particular, but then a bright cloud comes and overshadows all of them. 
a scene very reminiscent of Moses at Mount Sinai in the cloud of glory that surrounded the mountain as Moses conversed with God himself. Jesus and his disciples are on the mountain. Out of the cloud, a voice speaks. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 5 of chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel. This is my Son. I am well pleased in him. Listen to him. It's stories like this from Scripture, this and Mount Sinai and others, where this inner circle of disciples gets this glimpse, just a glimpse of the true glory and majesty of Christ. It's from these kinds of experiences that we get the phrase, a mountaintop experience. The disciples had it. Moses had it. Others had it. It's a a word, a phrase that's used to describe that extraordinary kind of experience that people have, a special encounter with God and with his word. And I bring that up because I want us to think about the book of Hebrews as kind of a literary mountaintop experience. Here we are going to encounter God, particularly encounter Christ in a way that he is portrayed, unlike how he's portrayed in other parts of Scripture. His majesty shown to us, his glory, his supremacy shown to us in particularly powerful ways. But also, the repeated refrain that we find in Hebrews, in one way or another, the idea that comes back again and again and again, effectively the writer to the Hebrews is saying over and over, listen to him, listen to Jesus, consider Jesus, pay attention to this salvation that you've received. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. Bear with this word of exhortation. Very similar to that word that came out of the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. Another reason for Hebrews being kind of a mountaintop experience for us from God's word is it really is one of the most profound books in the New Testament. Its teaching is very deep and wonderful. Simple on the surface, but as you dig into it, it it becomes full of of magnificence. But it's also, it's probably the best written book in the whole New Testament. Full of incredible literary excellence. A piece de resistance of New Testament literature. So as we come before Hebrews, think of it as our own little congregational mountaintop experience. We're going to see Jesus in a way that he's not portrayed elsewhere. But we're also going to be called, just like those disciples, just like Peter, James, and John, we're going to be called to listen to him. And that, as much as anything, is the theme of the book of Hebrews. God has spoken by his Son. Therefore, listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. Believe in him and do what he's telling you to do. So this morning, I just want to do a a brief, basic overview of the book, introduce it to us, and then consider how that, that overarching theme of the book is presented to us right here in the opening words 
of the letter to the Hebrews. So let's talk about the book, just a little bit of introduction. The questions we ask about books of the Bible. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who did they write it to? When did they write it? We're going to ask those questions about Hebrews, but they are <laughs> they're hard to answer with Hebrews. Um, there's a lot of opinions, and those various opinions are, are, many of them, very well founded and have a good basis in thought and analysis of God's Word and of the book. Um, and part of the reason for that is, unlike other books, especially letters in the New Testament, Hebrews doesn't answer those questions for us. There's no opening that says, I, Paul, write this to you. I, Paul, and Timothy, greet you. I, Peter, write to you now. Um, it just starts. Long ago, in many ways, in many, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. Hebrews is a little bit of a challenge to figure out. But let's, let's work through these questions as best we can. <laughs> I'll start with the most difficult one, I think. Who wrote it? Simple answer. We don't know. The early fathers didn't know. Uh, Origen, for all his faults, one of the, the, the wise students of, of Scripture himself just said, look, we, we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. The traditional answer has been Paul, but there are good reasons to conclude it wasn't Paul. I think one of the strongest is there in chapter 2, it talks about... Um, this message of salvation that was delivered to us by those who heard it. The writers including himself and those who heard it from those who got it directly. Paul never talks about himself that way. Paul always says, I got my gospel directly from Christ, right there on the road to Damascus. So it's probably not Paul. Um, Paul follows a certain style and outline in his letters. Um, There's other technical reasons to think it might not be Paul. Um, Hebrews is very different from the way Paul typically writes. But nevertheless, it's probably someone that Paul knew or was part of his circle. Timothy is mentioned at the end of this letter as being released uh, and hopefully coming to them as the writer also hopes to come visit them. Timothy released, we presume, is being released from prison. Um, so who, who is it? Is it Barnabas? That's one proposal. Is it Luke? Luke is another of Paul's uh, circle of of ministers. We've got two other books from Luke in the Bible. It could be from Luke. Is it someone like Apollos, whom Paul knew and respected, and who was considered very, very wise and and eloquent in the Word of God? There's strengths and weaknesses for any of those different ideas. If If you force me to make a decision, I'd probably lean towards Barnabas. Um, but not with a whole lot of conviction. (laughs) Um, And in some ways, it's hard to completely rule out Paul as well. So we don't know who the author is. And and maybe that's deliberate on the part of the Holy Spirit um, to to keep the author in the background, to keep Jesus in the foreground of this magnificent letter. Well, who was it written to? The traditional title in the Greek manuscripts is to the Hebrews. Um, great. So, which Hebrews? Jewish Christians were pretty confident. The author talks about God speaking to our fathers, so they're probably Jewish. 
constant use of the Old Testament in quotes and in examples throughout the book. They're fellow believers because they're brothers, and there's a regular warning to them not to fall away from their faith in Jesus Christ. So it's to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians, but is it to all Hebrews everywhere? All Jewish believers everywhere? Probably not likely. Um, It seems to be a letter written to a certain group of people in a certain place. Um, Mostly because we see things like persecution and, and opposition addressed. Uh, as as one of the things that might cause them to fall away. Um, Nevertheless, maybe it was written to a certain group in a certain place and meant to be circulated widely, as many New Testament era documents were, whether scripture or just secular writings. If there's a location, it's probably either Rome or Jerusalem. Places where Jewish Christians lived in in large groups um, and places where there was pretty heavy opposition uh, at different times in Rome and at different times in Jerusalem. And whichever you pick depends on how you interpret the little hints that are found uh, throughout the the book. They must have been somewhere. Um, because the author does intend to go visit who he's writing to. Uh, So they must be in some place. When was it written? Probably somewhat later in the New Testament era. Uh, Again, in in chapter 2, the author refers to himself and his readers as people who heard the good news from those who heard it firsthand. So these are like second-generation believers who heard their faith from the apostles themselves. It's probably later than in the era. Most people would say that the letter was written sometime in the 60s, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, since there's no mention of that in the book. That makes a lot of sense, and it's a pretty wise and good conclusion. However, one could make the argument that, while not mentioning the event directly, Hebrews could be written in response to the temple being destroyed, and the distress and anguish that may have caused many Jewish Christians, especially if they lived in Jerusalem. Our temple is gone. How do we respond to this? Do we fall away from the faith? Has God abandoned us? So I could, I could, I could see an argument being made that this was written after 70 AD, but it's most likely before. Why was the letter written? <laughs> The main reason for the letter being written seems to be to encourage these believers who are facing hardship, opposition, persecution, to encourage them not to fall away because of it. It's part of the reason why Rome and Jerusalem are primary candidates. There's a strong encouragement in this word of exhortation that the author calls it, um, not to fall away. Hear what I have written to you. Listen to it. Um, It's an incredibly brilliant letter again. Literarily. Alliteration. (coughs) Phrases repeated. Ways of bookending different themes and thoughts and ideas. It doesn't follow a typical letter style. 
this, this book really reads more like a sermon that someone wrote down and then appended a little, you know, kind of letter postlude to it or epilogue of some kind. Um, so it's, it's, it's likely a sermon, a sermon that's been written down, a sermon that was meant to address the, the response that believers should have to hardship and persecution, but it has a very simple message, as a good sermon does. Jesus, the Son of God, has spoken. Listen to him, believe in him, obey him. That's the repeated theme throughout this book. Now, that basic theme, that basic exhortation, that encouragement or commandment is accompanied by these long explanations for why (laughs) you should hear and listen and obey the exhortation being given. Evidence for why we should listen to Jesus. Evidence for why we should continue to have faith in him. Reasons for why we should obey what he tells us what to do. So the book kind of teeter-totters between two kinds of addressing the audience. Exhortation, think of it as commands or encouragement or admonishment, and then the explanation. Other technical terms are used in commentaries, but I'm not here to teach you technical terms. Exhortation and explanation are easy to remember. Exhortation, do this, believe this, think this. Explanation, why? Um, And some people like to divide and outline the book by those things, but even that's hard. Because in the exhortations, there's explanation. And in the explanation, there's exhortation. So there's just this wonderful interwoven message of seeing Jesus, hearing what he said, and responding to it appropriately. And so that's why, again, I put together this little handout to try and put down, at least for my own thoughts, the flow of what's going on in this sermon letter. All right, so these opening verses, how do we take these and how do they set us up, if you will, for, for this ongoing thematic message? It opens very abruptly. It opens very quickly. There's no greeting. There's no hello. There's no, I give thanks for you. It just dives right in. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. These are the themes I want to look at in in these few words. First of all, that it is God who is speaking. Second, that God is speaking to somebody. Who is he speaking to? There's a time factor here. When did God speak? There's a means. How did God speak? And kind of through whom he speaks goes with that. And look at those five ideas real briefly. That God is speaking, the audience to whom he's speaking, when he spoke, how he spoke, and through whom God speaks. One of the most profound realities of truth and life in existence we can even consider is that God speaks. God speaks. He is not silent. There's a famous book by a famous author. God is not silent. We know this. We know that God speaks in his creation, his natural revelation. And we know that that is sufficient by itself to reveal to every single person who's ever lived on the face of the earth 
that God is, and that they should pursue God, and that they should worship Him. That would be enough. But what's amazing is that God speaks directly to us in His Word. Special revelation, we call it. He uses what John Calvin called baby talk from his perspective to speak to us about himself, show us who he is, describe who he is, tell us what he's done, and then to call us to repentance and faith in him and obedience to his word. Now here's the thing about God speaking. There's many things we could say, but here's what I want to focus on. If God speaks, we have the obligation to listen. If E.F. Hutton speaks and everybody listens, how much more so when God speaks should everybody listen? And not just listen, but listen with understanding. Listen with a desire to understand, with the intent to learn what he wants us to learn and to do what he wants us to do. That's our obligation. It's our obligation every time God speaks. Every time you pick up God's word to read it, God is speaking to you. Every time you listen to a sermon, God is speaking to you. What is he saying? There's an obligation on every single one of us as hearers, me as well. I have to hear God's word speaking to me before I can speak it to you. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time and yours. What is God saying? What do I need to learn? What do I need to believe? What do I need to do? That God speaks also means that God, what God says is the standard for truth and for what we should believe and for how we should live. To think again about the terrible events of the last few days and this past week, really just the sickening evil that's been on display, both civilians and police murdered. I've been astonished as I've kind of surveyed the landscape of feedback from friends, and particularly those who name themselves as Christians, how few of those who have turned to God's word for understanding and instruction on how to evaluate and respond to these events that have happened. They'll talk about politics. They'll talk about statistics from some source. They'll talk about social action. They'll talk about peace and harmony and love and understanding. They want to organize marches. They want to give speeches. They want to file lawsuits. Very few point to God and his word, what it says about what has happened. And calling people to the only real true source of, of peace and reconciliation. If we're going to have peace, if we're going to have reconciliation, it is only going to come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in him. Finding peace with God and peace with one another. We must turn to God's word for everything in life. What we think about things and how we live and speak about them. So God speaks. That very fact itself is profound as this book opens. But God speaks to somebody. And here it says, God spoke to our fathers and he spoke to us. So in a sense, while God's word is for the whole world, we know that it is especially given to us, his people that even we can't believe in it or submit to it properly without the empowering 
work of God's Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit that's given to us, that's poured out upon we, His people. So for God's Word to have its maximum effect, it has to be heard, it has to be believed, it has to be submitted to and applied in life by God's own people. So the burden falls upon us in particular to study God's Word, to learn it, to believe it, and to live it. And then, if we see the effectiveness of that in restoring relationships and bringing true peace among people, then it's incumbent upon us to take that word and spread it to others. This is how we are fruitful and multiply. We are called to make disciples, draw them to repentance and faith, so that peace, true peace, and true reconciliation can come to more and more people. Through Christ, by the power of the Spirit. So God speaks to us. He speaks to his people. There's another interesting contrast in here then. There's, there's a time factor in these opening words about when God spoke and to whom he spoke. Long ago, it says, he spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, says the author, he's spoken to us. Now we're starting to see the comparison that this author is going to make time and time again in his letter. Long ago, God spoke through prophets. Many times he spoke through those prophets. But now he's spoken by his son. The period of silence that enveloped a good 400 years before the coming of Christ has come to an end. That question that the people of God had, where is God? Where is his word? Where are his prophets? When is he going to speak to us? When are his promises going to be fulfilled? That time, the author is saying, has come to an end in the appearance of his very own son. Here is God. Here and now is the fulfillment of those promises. The silence is over. These last days are the ones that were prophesied in Scripture. The promises are coming to fulfillment The era of new covenant revelation is upon us in Jesus the Son. God spoke then to the prophets. Now he speaks through his very own Son. How God spoke is very interesting. There's another contrast that the writer makes. Long ago he spoke, he says, at many times and in many ways. We saw this in our reading from Jeremiah this morning. God spoke over and over and over again to his people through the prophets. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. And what was the result? What does Jeremiah say? What do the other prophets say? Over and over and over again, at many times and in many ways, the people of God rejected what God was saying to them. Their hearts were hard. Their ears were cold. They chased after other gods. They rebelled against the Lord God of Israel. That's what happened before. Well, now there's a contrast. Before he spoke at many times and in many ways. Now he speaks one way. Through the Son. Through his very own Son. And he speaks clearly. Through whom God spoke, again a contrast. Before it was through prophets, men called 
equipped for a lifetime or even just for a season of time with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak God's word to his people. Now he speaks through just one, just through his son. Now again, we're going to see these contrasts repeated over and over again as we go through this book. But even here they begin to show us one of the key points that the writer is going to make, the inadequacy of what came before. It's poorer quality. It's poorer effect. It was ineffective. And now something superior has come in God's very own Son. The many prophets, the many ways, the long period of time, the centuries over which God spoke to his people stand in stark contrast to the immediate, direct word spoken through the one Son now. That's the point the author is making. God spoke for a long time to our fathers. Now it's one. One word, one message through one prophet, his very own son, in these last days. Before, because of the stubborn, hard hearts of his people, who kept wandering like sheep away from God, he had to keep speaking to them over and over and over again patiently calling them back over and over and over again, at many times, in many ways, through his prophets back to himself. But that word did not have the intended result. It wasn't the fault of the word, but of the means and times and audience. But now that word has come in the flesh. The beauty of John's gospel as it opens, or what we saw when we went through Luke, how Luke shows us the word made flesh. Now that word has become flesh. Now that word is incarnated. And now that word speaks. And now when that word speaks, he sends his Holy Spirit with it, poured out upon all of his people to make sure it is effective and to make sure it accomplishes everything that he wants it to accomplish. So this revelation, this word this God speaking through his Son in these last days is superior to whatever has come before. And so the therefore that we're going to hear over and over again, the exhortation that we're going to hear over and over and over again is to listen. Pay attention. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be hard-headed like those former people of God. Don't be stubborn like they were. Instead, pay attention. Consider Jesus. Consider this Son of God who is speaking. He's superior. He's more excellent. He's better by far than anything that has come before. So listen to him. Believe what he says. Believe in him. Have faith like those who came before us, who didn't even see what we see. Don't waver, don't stray, don't fall away. And do what he tells you to do. If the events of the last week have told us anything, (laughs) it's that we need to pay attention. But pay attention especially 
to what God has said. As we open up this book, this mountaintop experience for us as a church, remember this as we go through it. God has spoken, and it's time to pay attention. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord our God, we know that you have spoken. We just ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to do what you have called us to do, to believe the things that you call us to believe, to think the way that you call us to think, to think your thoughts after you, to be molded willingly into the image of Christ, to consider him and follow after his ways. We cannot do this in our own strength. And so once again, we ask for the outpouring, the powerful outpouring of your Holy Spirit among us and in us to make us into the people that you would have us to be. Equip us to do the things you have called us to do and open our minds to understand the things that you have said to us. All of this, Father, as always, we ask in the precious and wonderful, holy name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who is superior to angels and prophets and priests, kings, and everything and everyone. Amen.